This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. You've heard of HBO's documentary, The Crime of the Century. Well, this is the other crime of the century, and a hysterical overcorrection of the opioid crisis, the DEA has been threatening doctors who prescribe opioid pain medication based solely on voluntary CDC guidelines. Multiple chronic pain patients have contemplated and committed suicide. Some have turned to Kratom. Dr. Thomas Klein from Raleigh, North Carolina is here to talk about the state-sanctioned torture of pain patients. A lot of people have discovered Kratom because they've actually been cut off of opioids uh, uh, by their doctors in recent years. Um, And so uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of documentaries about, uh, you know, the overprescription opioid crisis. And but now there's kind of an underprescription crisis, which is what you're talking about. And just uh, how widespread and how bad is this crisis? Well, according to the government, there are 10 million people, 3% of the population that have the need to take um, opiate pain medicine every day. And they didn't say who they were because they don't know. Um, So we did a survey and 97% of people who who are uh, taking daily pain medicines have long-term painful diseases. And these are diseases like CRPS, chronic, I mean, uh, complex regional pain disease, um, interstitial cystitis of the bladder, adhesive arachnoiditis of the inflammation of the covering over the spine, um, disastrous multi-joint arthritis that cannot be treated with anything else ulcerative colitis, um, sickle cell anemia. Um, These are all rare diseases. They're lifelong, they're permanent, and they need permanent treatment. We treat cardiac disease with cardiac medicine, and so we should treat painful disease with pain medicine. So there are three surveys that suggest more than 70% of people have been reduced. Half of those have been taken off. So if you multiply that times 10 million people, uh, we have a humanitarian crisis of six to seven million people, unverified by the government because they don't want to know. The CDC was required three months before they published their guidelines to be sure to follow up for any unintended consequences. They've been told, notified uh, for the past four years uh, that there is a real serious problem because doctors believe that the CDC guidelines are law. And so they're taking people off their medicines. To what end? To fight the opioid crisis. See, the mythology starts to get real fuzzy Uh, When you actually ask questions, like how does taking people off their medicines they've been on for 10 years for their permanent chronic painful disease going to help with the 
overdose crisis. Well, if I were sitting here with a government official, what would they say? It's hard to imagine what they would say. They would say things like, well, overprescribing uh, causes addiction and overdose. Well, where's the proof for that? So what happened was actually an experiment was done by the CDC. In other words, they said that the number of overdose deaths is running parallel to the number of prescriptions written. And therefore, the prescriptions are causing the overdose deaths. That's the same logic as cheese is yellow, the moon is yellow, therefore the moon is made of cheese. <laughs> so it's a hypothesis, and anybody can have a hypothesis. I could have a hypothesis that the world is flat. But then my next step is to prove it. Now, you can prove it in two ways. You can do an experiment, or you can use logic that was given to us by Socrates. It's a mathematical system of asking questions and using rules of logic. <laughs> so they actually did an experiment by tricking doctors into believing these are horrible drugs. And if they prescribe too many, they're going to get arrested by the federal drug police. We've actually had a drop of 30% in the prescriptions written. Mm. That's a lot. Mm. And they think that's a good idea. What it's done is it's uh, caused harm in six to seven million people. That's the result of the 30%. So now that the prescriptions have dropped 30%, we must see a 30% drop in overdose deaths. Oops, it's gone up. So at that point, you stop doing the experiment. This is kind of like in medicine when we're, do, uh, we're doing a, conducting a study and things start to go wrong. What do you do? You stop it. So the experiment's yeah. gone wrong. You stop it immediately to prevent more harm. The yeah. AMA, the American Medical Association, wrote a letter to the CDC and said, you know what? This is causing a lot of harm to patients. And the CDC said... Nothing. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, once they see like some of this evidence that uh, I guess, you know, people are turning to illegal drugs for their pain and then they don't know what's in it. And that's probably is that what's causing most of the overdoses? And, and why aren't they acting with this uh, new information? Well, I guess the next question would be to ask the, uh, and reporters don't do this for some reason, and I'll tell you in a minute why I think they don't. Um, so the CDC says 80,000 drug overdoses this year. Okay, how many of those involved opiates? Oh, about 60,000. So not 80,000, about 60,000. And who are they? If I said that 2,600 people died in Wyoming last year, the next question would be, who, who died? So if you ask the CDC that, and they've never mentioned this, actually, 
95% of the overdose deaths are in people with heroin disease. These are people dying on the streets because they don't have medical treatment. We only provide 20% of people with heroin disease treatment. Now, we're talking about opiate addiction. We're not talking about any other addictions right now because that's what the government's focused on. Why is the government focused on heroin addiction, opiate addiction, when in fact it's much more dangerous when people are addicted to cocaine and amphetamines and alcohol? Mm -hmm. That's where the serious crime occurs. If you look at serious crime, you find that heroin and marijuana are at the bottom of the list. So why are we focused on this and not focused on methamphetamine? Methamphetamine really does destroy people. Mm. You know, so the answer to that is that we have an inbuilt, deeply ingrained fear of addiction phobia. Mm. Now, phobia is a mental illness in which you have excessive fear and then you avoid what it is you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. If you're afraid to drive over a bridge, that's excessive fear. And so you avoid driving over bridges. So what we do is rather than avoiding it, people aren't getting addicted. What we do is we make sure nobody else gets addicted. So in other words, we would put up a sign and say, nobody gets to drive over this bridge because I'm afraid to drive over the bridge. So with opiate, a fear of opiate addiction, uh, that's what's behind everything. So in other words, if you say, why are they doing this? That's the answer. Yeah. They've got senators running around uh, saying these uh, absurd things. Like, for example, treatment of of, of addicts? Are you kidding? You're going to give dope to dopers? We're not. We're not going to allow that. So they don't allow it. And so you read about all this money being spent going to treatment. What it's going to, it's going to the rehab industry. Yeah. The rehab complex industry, like the complex uh, military thing that Eisenhower talked about. Military, mm -hmm. what do we call Industrial. it? Industrial. Rehab Industrial, yeah. yeah, that's it. Same thing. Um, yeah. Why now? Why are we not treating people? Because we have a rehab industry that makes a lot of money, thousand mm. dollars a day. That's an awful lot of money. It doesn't cost that much to be in the ICU, most hospitals. Um, so why are they getting away with it? Well, guess what. Rehab is not regulated. Mm. Nursing homes are regulated. Hospitals are regulated. Pain clinics theoretically are regulated. Doctor's offices are regulated. Dentists are regulated. All healthcare is regulated, except for rehab. Mm. Now they don't want it, want it regulated. 
because they've got a nice little revolving door going. What mm. they do is you go into the rehab, you don't get a choice of what they do. So a lot of times you've got, you have to be clean to go in. You have to be free of your drugs. Yeah. So you, you go off of your medicine uh, that they're taking by themselves or heroin or other opiates and you go in and then they uh, take $30,000 from you for a month's treatment. And then they send you home. So most people with heroin disease will start shooting up immediately once they're out. And uh, if they don't die, which a lot of lot do die, then they're going to go back in a rehab. Mm. This becomes a business model to beat all business models. So then another 30,000 a month, and they never really have a definitive treatment program. Sadly, you cannot get rid of heroin addiction, opiate addiction, because it's hardwired in the brain. You mm -hmm. can stop an addiction to marijuana, uh, to co cocaine and amphetamines, and even alcohol, and you'll be fine. But heroin disease is permanent. And it's permanent because it's hardwired in the brain. And it's, excuse me, it's inherited in the family. Yeah. So the reason everything is such a mess is because people have not realized that there's really two groups of addiction, you know, the heroin disease addiction, and then the other group, but they're very different, but we're only focused on the heroin because it's in our fabric. We believe that uh, a person with addiction disease is a junkie. Mm. The, the mental image of a junkie in the United States is worse than anybody else. It's worse than sex offenders. It's worse than atomic spies. It's worse than killers. It's just a terrible, terrible vision. That's because only families have really met um, heroin disease people. And in order to find their uh, medicine, because it's a disease, no reason not to call it a medicine. And by the way, heroin is a painkiller. It's called diamorphine. We used to use it. It's a great drug. Mm -hmm. It's about the same as oxycodone. Except in 1925, the government felt if we just get all the substance off the street, we'll cure the problem. And they made heroin illegal for all uses, mm -hmm. including us doctors. So the, the fear of addiction phobia started at the turn of the century during um, during uh, Puritan times when women were put up on pedestals and they weren't allowed to go to high school and they had to wear long dresses. Yeah. Because Randolph Hearst, who sold a lot of newspapers telling lies, uh, made up a story about white women going into opium dens in San Francisco and then running off with Chinese owners and men. That wasn't true. Chinese men don't want to run off with white women. But he lied and made up the story. So remember now, it's 1900. So this becomes an intense moral issue. White women losing their virtue by smoking opium. Yeah. 
So now the next thing that happened is a couple of fanatics, a doctor by the name of uh, Hamilton and a Episcopal minister, uh, forgot his name, but anyway, they started to rant, rave and go to Congress and convince the president and everything that, that you know, this is terrible. Our, our society is going down the toilet. Sounds just like stuff you hear today. Communities are affected down the toilet. People are immoral. A lot of words like immoral. So in 1914, they passed the law, which uh, a lot of people didn't really want to pass. And they tried to regulate um, narcotics for the very first time by putting a tax on them and making doctors register and write down when they did it. And guess what started on the streets? Heroin. Yeah. Heroin is cheap. Um, You could buy it across the counter until that time. Uh, and the, by regulating it, what happens is the price shot up on all the other products. So that's when the heroin uh, started. There were 200,000 addicts at the time. And well, that was uh, about half a percent or less than 1% of the population. So today we have, guess how many heroin addicts at heroin disease people? We have 800,000. But if you correct it and what the rate is, what we call the prevalence, you know, what percentage of the population has this particular disease? Less than 1%. Yeah. It's actually, it's frighteningly the same. It's four people per thousand uh, was in 1920 and, and now is today. So what that tells us as doctors, if you have a disease that has a constant prevalence, there's only one way that can be, and that's it has to be inherited or genetic. Uh, rates for um, other addictions like, uh, you know, cocaine and amphetamines bounce around from year to year. They're not the same all the time. Yeah. So it's interesting that uh, you know people really don't want to hear this, but heroin disease people get their disease triggered on the first pill. Mm. And that's because it's genetically triggered. We have another disease. It's an anemia. It's kind of rare. It's called G6PD. In other words, you have the genetics running around in your body for this disease and nothing happens until you take a certain antibiotic or you uh, eat fava beans all of a sudden that triggers a hemolytic anemia, you start destroying your red blood cells. Hmm. So that's kind of a little parallel we have. And well, people say, oh, that, that, that's crap. You know, why don't they just stop? Well, it's part of the disease. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a physician in Boston, uh, an internist, loved practicing medicine. One of those people born to the stethoscope. He's in his 30s and he takes a Vicodin and all of a sudden he goes to the moon on the first pill. And I asked him the other day, I said, uh, what was it like? He said, yeah, I went to the moon. It was really something else. <laughs> um, I had, a, I was talking to an addict out in, uh, we're going to stop using that word addict, um, person with heroin disease out in Portland, Oregon. Okay, thanks, because yeah. I'm trying to learn the right words too. <laughs> yeah, you know, we got to get away from these pejorative words. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's heroin disease. It, it's you also said disease. misuse or uh, abuse is also uh, loaded, oh, well, loaded it's, words. It's the, yeah, it's the quartet. Misuse, abuse, 
overdose, addiction, and well, I forget what the fifth one is. They always they always put them together because yeah. when people are frightened and they don't know what's going on, they they latch on to words. So the big word that's been latched onto is misuse. So a person with heroin disease, are they misusing the opiates? Yes, because misuse is defined as taking a medicine for no medical reason. In other words, there's no disease. But actually, they have a disease, but we'll stick with misuse. So people with heroin disease misuse drugs so then they turn it around the moon is made of cheese and they say therefore if you misuse a drug you're an addict so then the government decides and uses the definition of misuse it used to be uh if you're using a drug for non-medical reasons but they changed it in 2015 they changed the definition of misuse to not taking the prescription the way it says on the bottle. Hmm. So they run around every year and they do these interviews and they go and they pay people 35 bucks, which by the way, if you're a surveyor, you never do that biases your, hmm. uh, you know, they're going to tell you what you want, you know, if you give them money. Yeah. So, so they, anyway, they ask and they say, all right, now, how many of you have had an opiate prescription? I mean, a lot of hands go up because there's about 96 million prescriptions written every year for opiates. That's a lot. So then they say, okay, if you've got an opiate prescription, they, they have these little laptops they carry around, they punch in the answers. If you have had an opiate prescription, did you take it in a way that was different than written on the bottle? So the bottle says one pill every six hours. Well, anybody in pain needs to actually regulate their medicine according to their pain. And it's so safe that you can actually do that. So in other words, if it's real bad, you can take two or three, mm-hmm. you know, within, yeah. the, within the limits that you agree upon with your physician. So now, uh, oh, yes, last week I had to take an extra one. Bingo. Press the button. Abuser. Oh, man. This user. <laughs> I always tell a funny story about um, abuse. The original word abuse was a sexual word, and it had to do with masturbation. <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> You're abusing yourself. Yeah. Right? I went to Catholic so school, the- so I think I heard that a couple times. <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> Okay, well, here's how it got started. Back in Boston, in the uh, Massachusetts Bay Company and the Puritans, several boys were caught masturbating. And do you know what the penalty for self-abuse was? They sent these teenagers back to England, away from their families. They got rid of them. So whenever I see the word abuse, I always have to laugh. Abuse is not a medical word. Misuse is not a medical word. And overprescription is not a medical word. They're not in our lexicon. People are making these up who are not doctors. And they're playing doctors. 
And they're saying that people that misuse drugs are going to end up becoming addicted. And then so the Socratic way, the next question is, and tell me how that happens. Mm -hmm. You see, what they've done is they've reversed the logic, which you you can't do. Um, That's a no-no in the rules of logic. And so, oh, but, you know, every every doper I've ever talked to misuses their drugs. Okay, true. So now let's go to people that don't have the disease and they misuse their drugs. So what happens? Oh, well, they get high doses and high doses cause more addiction. (laughs) Well, how come we don't have more addicts? We got the same as we had in 1920. But now we're prescribing to, we prescribe 250 million prescriptions to 95 million different people. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, I would think that we'd have half the country at shooting up behind dumpsters. But we don't. <laughs> yeah. Why, why don't we? Well, we don't because it's a triggered disease. So yeah. how, how about other other addictions. So we have to call those addictions. Not, it's not opiate addiction, but it is, it is amphetamine addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that happen? That's a behavioral circumstance. People start taking medicines um, like amphetamines and cocaine. Cocaine is a, is a medicine I use very much. But, um, uh, marijuana is the biggie. And alcohol. People take alcohol every day after work because they feel like shit and they want to feel better. So they take something to make them feel better. So you see that group, we call this type one addiction group. So it's like type one and type two diabetes. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Uh, and, and it's interesting that in diabetes, they didn't realize there was a second type for 40 years. Mm. When insulin was invented, they just assumed anybody with a high blood sugar needed insulin and they had diabetes. And then it, they finally realized, oops, there's two kinds. And... The second kind was called non-insulin dependent diabetes or adult diabetes. So same thing, yeah. same name, same there's similarities, but they are way, way different diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we, if we look at um, the group where substance may make things worse, like amphetamines, if you control the, uh, the ingredients to make methamphetamine, you're probably going to reduce the number of people that get so used to taking this stuff that they call it addiction. Now we define addiction differently because there's two kinds and it's very important that the difference be, be realized. The first group um, of addiction light, let's say, uh, can still cause extremely serious problems. So our definition is addiction type one is involvement with a substance or activity to the degree that it ruins your daily life. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you are drinking, you know, a case of beer on the weekends, passing out unconscious, and then Monday you go to work, and there's no other consequences, like, you know, you're spending enough time with your family because you're drunk. <laughs> if there's no, other, uh, there's no other consequences, you don't have an addiction. Yeah. So, but 
with heroin and opiates because it's hardwired, you do have the disease. And our old word addiction needs to be thrown away because see, it's completely different than the group one. The group one is behavioral. Yeah. And there are, there are pathways in the brain, but those are the same pathways you get from, if you like to eat too many chocolates, Yeah, you yeah. know, you're getting, you're getting reinforced and they found those pathways, but they're different than the pathways in the heroin disease. And it does take a while. So the observation has been, Gee whiz, to really get into a bad situation with cocaine, you got to really do it a lot over a long period of time, and then you ruin your daily life. Mm -hmm. So the assumption is passed over to type 2 heroin disease. If you take opiates for a long period of time, you will become addicted. Oops. That's why it's important to separate these two. And your, your analogy with diabetes is true. People with type 2 diabetes are being treated with insulin, and they should not be because they don't need it. Like type 1, you have to have insulin or you die. So, so the fear then becomes over-prescribing. Yeah. Now, over-prescribing is not a term that we doctors use. Uh, it's not in our lexicon. Um, if I was talking to another doctor and I said, George, I think you're over-prescribing. What I would mean was that he was giving out too many antidepressants to people that don't need it. But the government um, feels that overprescribing is such a serious offense, doctors go to prison. There was a doctor sent yeah. to prison for three years uh, this week because he prescribed two million pills. Wow. Oh, wait, oh, wait a minute now. Is this a federal offense, prescribing too many pills? And what is too many? If I say that the I don't the neighbor has too many bushes in his in his yard, there has to be some kind of standard, you know, more than yeah. ten, more than fifteen. So the the sad ironic thing is to treat people with chronic pain, you you have to give them a medicine every four hours. There's no other drugs that I know of. I've been doing this 40 years that you have to give every four hours. Mm -hmm. So if you have high blood pressure, you take one pill a day. And if you have painful disease, you take it six times a day. So right away, you're taking six times more. Yeah. And, and ironically, the highest dose for oxycodone, which is our best and most reliable and, and, and least expensive pain medicine is one pill is usually not enough. Mm -hmm. because they don't make a 16 milligram pill. Isn't that ironic? They only make a 30. So I've, um, some of my patients were taking three or even four every six hours. Okay. Yeah. Now these are, these are, that sounds like a lot and people really get nervous, mm -hmm. but now we've got to go back to the FDA. They're in charge of regulating prescription drugs. Yeah. So if you really, if you really want to find out what too much is, you go to the FDA. So I've just given, let's say, 200 milligrams of an antidepressant to somebody, and the FDA says the maximum is 100. So the FDA is going to say, well, Klein, you're, you're, you're prescribing too much. So then you ask the same question, and you say, all right, so I'm giving oxycodone, uh, and I'm giving them um, you know, 30 a day, 900 a month. 
right? Yeah. And so I say to the FDA, uh, is that too much? And the FDA says, we don't have a limit. Mm-hmm. So it's not too much because there's no comparison. There's no rule. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, I mean, the guy next door could have 900 bushes in his yard. Yeah. Because there's no standard. You know, if the, if the city had a rule, we can't have more than 10 bushes, then we got a problem. He's prescribing. He's, he's putting in too many bushes. So, so why so, is the CDC yeah. even involved when it's the FDA's jurisdiction to tell you, you know, what, yeah, what you can do with like food and drugs? Yeah, this is like the uh, uh, you know agriculture department um, building an aircraft carrier. <laughs> yeah. In other words, the federal government uh, is is set up to help us citizens. You know, we're the ones that set it up, and so then what they do is they create agencies, mm-hmm. and then when they create the agency, there's a law that creates the agency. They give the agency what's called rulemaking authority. That means they can pass regulations that have the effect of law. So each one, each agency gets a long list of rulemaking authority. Now, the CDC's rulemaking authority, which you can look up, you know, has to do with controlling epidemics and, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 long thing. But there's nothing on the CDC uh, mission statement anything to do with any prescription drugs or the practice of medicine at all. Mm-hmm. They can let out uh, regulations or, you know, don't uh, don't sell turtles, you know, that haven't been checked for salmonella. And they can they can put out these kinds of regulations to help with uh, infectious disease. So they uh, basically did what Washington calls informal regulation. That's the term they use. Mm-hmm. That means they're doing it wrong. That means they're making up regulations and they have no authority. So the CDC published a 50-page single-spaced document that nobody in this country has read because I've been working on it for more than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and buried on page three, I think, in an unrelated paragraph is the word voluntary. And if you word scan the entire 50 pages, you'll find the word voluntary is in there one time. Yeah. Gets them off the hook. See, so they're unauthorized. Nobody authorized them to do this. Congress didn't authorize them and they don't have their own internal authorization because they don't have rulemaking. So it is very fair to say these are unauthorized guidelines. Now, from a medical standpoint, they're the weirdest guidelines I ever read because it doesn't tell you when to use the medicine. Mm-hmm. It only tells you when not to use it. Yeah. And they, and they say, oh, no, we didn't say taper. In, you know, we're not responsible for this. It was misread. Um, but the word taper, if you word search that, is in there 42 times. Mm. Now, in my textbook that I have, my you know, pharmacology textbook, on the section on opiates, the word tapers in there once. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's kind of like, how do you get somebody off these medicines? Let's say if they could have suddenly develop an allergic reaction or something, you got to get them off. Yeah. You know, tapers in there once. The um, 
the word overdose death or the pair of words overdose death is in the CDC guidelines 140 times. So guess what they're worried about? <laughs> they're worried about overdoses and they, uh, somebody said the other day, and by calling an epidemic, then they can grab it as, as a, you know, oh, this is in our jurisdiction. Oh, <laughs> okay. So that's their, that's our, their rationale. Yeah. And they, they do have an injury section. They got into the, the business of poisonings and injuries somehow way back. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, so, so the overdose deaths become poisonings. So you see, they do have rulemaking about poisonings. So um, they are definitely not doing this properly. This is the FDA is the, yeah, is the agency with rulemaking authority. And so when the FDA says oxycodone has no limit, states cannot make laws to say that, oh, well, there's one state that says you can only have 120 oxycodone a month. That's what we call, what do we call it? When, you, when you're over the federal government. Um, uh, yeah, insurrection. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll think of it a minute. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, the Constitution yeah. Yeah. has a supremacy clause that says, you know, you can make all the laws you want, you state standards, as long as you're not making a law that contradicts one of our federal laws. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you can't do that. Um, it's, <laughs> this is what got us into the Civil War. Yeah. See, the state started to nullify. That's it. Nullification. The state started to nullify federal laws. You, you can't do that. So when a state passes a law and it says you can only have 120 oxycodone a month, they are now in violation of the supremacy clause and should be struck down immediately. But -hmm. nobody does that. Why? Fear of addiction phobia. Yeah. And when people are, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask. So, like, you mentioned a doctor that was arrested. I mean, how much uh, pressure are they feeling from this? And and, and are they what kind of threats are they getting uh, if they prescribe this stuff? And is that what's behind all the under prescription or is it just just the fear in general? Well, we uh, we did a little survey and we asked patients, what did the doctors tell you that the reason for this was? And the majority of them said uh, the CDC and the DEA. Um, people, um, the, the attorney generals in the states are, are sending out letters to doctors. I know a physician up around the Great Lakes uh, who had a gigantic pain practice. Uh, 25 DEA agents came to his practice and rated him looking for information because he was the number one prescriber in the state. Mm. He was the number one prescriber because he had the largest practice. So the government believes that overprescribing, you see, too much medicine will cause more heroin addiction. And that's why it's important to know there's a difference. If the government uh, wants to control cocaine, they're going to get less cocaine addiction. Yeah. It's not working, you see, because they don't understand that there's this difference. And we have written a little paper on it. And uh, the majority of doctors who read it think that it's not, it's uh, no, that can't be right. 
Um, but this is part of a book written by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, a long time ago called The Scientific Revolution. We were required to read it in medical school. It's what happens when a new idea comes, mm. uh, you know, like the fact the Earth really rotates around the sun. Yeah. I mean, they were going to kill Galileo. Yeah. And, in a, in a, in, and you know what he said uh, right before they get ready to sentence him? He said, you know what? I think you're right. I think the sun rotates around the earth. <laughs> he saved he saved his life. They still put him under house arrest uh, in his home in Italy, wherever. So it's it's kind of that. It's very very powerful. In other words, if people say that opiates are safe, then they take their licenses away from them. That's what happened to me. Wow. Uh, in other words, I tweeted that not everybody can be addicted. The uh, Mayo Clinic, if you go to their website, it says anybody can become addicted. Addicted to what? Yeah. Anybody can become addicted to marijuana and use it too much and ruin their lives, but not everybody can become, uh, have a um, disease called heroin disease. Not everybody, only less than 1%. It's governed by your own genes. In other words, your genes actually protect you from becoming, uh, you know, falling into this bad trap, except for less than 1%. The genes don't protect them anymore. It gets such a huge response that, you know, like the, the kid said in Oregon when I was talking to him on the phone, he says, Dr. Klein, I mean, really? I don't understand why everybody's not doing this. Yeah. You know, so people say to me, you know, because we have the National Pain Council, we want to get people restored. Our goal is to get people back on um, the medicines they were taken off without their permission. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty nasty thing to do. That would be like me taking you into the operating room and operating on your back with no permission. Yeah. You know, and, we, and I, in our business, we call that assault. Go ahead. Yeah, and I saw uh, your article about suicides uh, associated with forced tapering. There was a list of 41 people. Yeah. This is from 2018. And um, the the one guy was a Navy veteran, and, and there was a initiative in the VA called the Opioid Safety Initiative. Um, mm -hmm. Do you know, uh, is there statistics on how many uh, suicides that has led to? No. Okay. And, and it's hard to get. I guess they wouldn't because, keep them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, because of the opiophobia. Yeah. Um, the medical examiners write these people off as drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. Even though they didn't take drugs, most of them don't. Why don't none of the 41 people took uh, drugs to kill themselves? I don't think. Because they've all been cut off. Yeah. You know, so they have to use ropes and guns and. One yeah. woman jumped in a freezer cold river. My God. Jeez. You know, uh, she's up in Detroit. Uh, so, so I've been rattling on. Ask some questions. <laughs> um, another one from that article. Um, there's something they're using as an alternative pain treatment called spinal electrical stimulator. What mm -hmm. is that? It doesn't sound very like it relieves pain. It sounds like the opposite. Well, um, you remember the movie Frankenstein? Yeah. 
and they put these electric things in his neck. Yeah. Well, that's what they're doing. They're oh, they're God. they're opening up your body, and they've got this um, electrical generator, and they put the probes right in your spine, and they shoot electricity up and down your spine, and it costs forty thousand dollars. And there's recently been some uh stories about uh, people actually being burned when they tried to recharge the batteries um we did a survey and it looks like it's only working maybe 20 percent of the time and like half of the people are having problems it's a terrible terrible thing from a medical standpoint strictly a medical standpoint if you've got a forty thousand dollar device with a lot of side effects and dangers and maybe only a small percentage benefit from it. You might want to use it after everything else has failed. And that includes running up the opiate medication, according to the FDA, to the point that it's not relieving pain and the person is acting um, inebriated. The side effect of too much opiates is acting drunk. Mm. Um, so you kind of know it's, it's handy, really. You kind of know if somebody's getting too much, yeah. um, it, you know, and if that fails and, uh, and the way we were all taught as general practitioners, um, if that doesn't work, try another opiate. Yeah. People are different. You know, people do well with this and, uh, and that, you know, you, you try three or four before you would ever subject your patient to this dangerous procedure that only works 25% of the time. Um, now there's a lot of articles written about it. Then we found out the doctors were getting seven to $10,000 kickbacks. Uh, okay. You know, so uh, it's, and Why nobody that illegal? This. Shouldn't that huh? be illegal uh, to get kickbacks from? Well, it is illegal. Yeah. They yeah. Catch you okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. I was going to ask, I, I mean, know. just how much, you know, I mean, big business I don't think should be involved in medicine other than to manufacture it. Uh, it just seems like there's a lot of that going on. All these documentaries are accusing, you know, the pharmaceutical companies from pushing this Oxycontin and whatnot on to people and overprescribing and stuff like that. And so that's what, you know, people think led to some kind of crisis uh, of of addiction but as you said it's it's not more than um one percent like it it uh used to be yeah that's a good point because people are confusing overdose deaths with addiction mm -hmm. in other words you'll hear coming out of the mouth of people um you know even speaking before congress that we've had an increase in addiction over the past few years the addiction the word addiction is not even in the cdc guidelines and they say nothing in there about increasing addiction, only increase overdose deaths. But people think the overdose deaths are occurring in communities, and they're not. 95% are occurring in the heroin community. So you see how they have dangerously manipulated numbers so that now people have no pain control for their long-term permanent pain diseases mm -hmm. that when they lose function, we did a little survey and we're going to do another, another one because I couldn't even believe the results. 
it said that a third of people have applied for social security disability who've been taken off their medicines. In other words, you are you lose your function. And in my 34 patients, when we just restored the medicine to what had worked before, their lives were all put back together, all 34. Mm-hmm. You know, so people are uh, people are desperate. I mean, they're they're flying across the country. 80% of doctors, according to a survey in medical economics, will not take a new patient who's on opiates. Now that means mm. not take them further. If they come in and they've got a, a, a problem with asthma, they won't take them. They come in with a problem. They've got GYN problems. They don't take the ladies. Uh, if you're on these medicines, you are an untouchable. Read about untouchables in India. Yeah. The caste system. The CDC has created a new caste system in the United States called the untouchables. Um, we have a story of a woman who said that when she told her neighbor that she was on opiate pain medicine, the neighbor wouldn't let the children play together anymore. That's crazy. That's being an untouchable. Yeah, really. Uh, people are assaulted in pharmacies. Uh, call them, uh, you know, the latest thing is to call people drug seekers. But do you know that yeah. drug seeking is against the federal law because drug seeking implies that you're trying to obtain medications illegally, opiates illegally, and that's a federal law. People go to prison for that. So people are yelling at, uh, and by the way, 70% of people with these long-term painful diseases are women. Mm-hmm. And somebody told me it's because they have more pain receptors, which I didn't know. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I wondered 70%, that's a lot, you know. So here are these house people, you know, with families and house managers and people that work downtown uh, being assaulted in the pharmacy being called dope fiends. Yeah. The uh, um, Andrew Kolodny, who is a psychiatrist. Oh, uh, I've heard of him. <laughs> I heard of him. He, he's, he, he, this is really strange. A single person, one person, got together with a small group of like-minded people, and they tried to convince the FDA to limit um, opiates put a put a dose limit on, and the FDA said no way. Your argument is is no good. So then Andrew Kladney and his group, physicians for um, responsible opioid prescribing, took their rejected ideas over to the CDC, and then they incorporated them in their guidelines. They incorporated things that the agency who has the responsibility for prescription drugs said, no, you can't do it. Mm. And they did it in a very sneaky way. And what they did, this is the famous 90 milligrams. 90 milligrams uh, a day is only enough for a third of people with painful disease. The mm. other two thirds need more. So what they did is they, they wrote it in such a way that if you read it real quick, it would seem like anything over 90 milligrams is banned or they are recommending, see, remember it's voluntary. They're mm-hmm. recommending anything over 90 milligrams is harmful. So if you read the section, it says, when we do not recommend doses over 90 milligrams, but if you justify it, then you're fine. 
justify it. So all the doctor's going to do is put in the chart, I justify this, we need to go over this, it's not working, and you're fine. And then what? There's no more limits. So as soon as you bust through the 90 milligram uh, gate, you go to any dose you want. Yeah. I, t- I told a pharmacist the other day that I had a patient six foot four. He was in the CIA. He was practicing a parachute jump and broke his back. Then he got some terrible operation and he's left with intractable pain to the point in his family, a wife and two kids, he was going to kill himself and he, he studied how to do it and he was going to put a bag over his head and run nitrogen in it. He was in so much pain. He was going to kill himself and he had a family. For him, it took about 800 of the 30 milligram oxycodone to make it so he became functional. He became so functional that he got a job. He wasn't able to work. He wasn't able to do anything. So he gets a job as a 9-11 dispatcher. And then the uh, pharmacy cut him off. Oh, man. Did he uh, Did he kill himself? No. no okay. We don't have any follow-up. All right. Um, it's, uh, so that's it. You see, we are going to eliminate junkies. So he was considered a junkie because he was taking a lot of pills. Um, And by the way, there is no study to show that more pills cause more problems. The FDA actually said, quote, there seems to be as many problems with low doses as with high doses. Yeah. (laughs) Or they found found a flaw on Andrew Kalodny's uh, petition in 2012. Um, And by the way, that's a document anybody can read. It's uh, FDA 2012-P, as in Paul. Dash zero eight one eight. It's uh, by the way, if, if people read it, um, the first half of it is is has to do with some minor thing about long acting drugs, which they did agree to this change in the label. So you got to go to the second half. So sometimes people start reading it and they give up. Uh, but just get LA. It's called long acting. Just keep keep going through it until you get past the LA stuff. So I mean, so what do you think has what has to happen to to get this uh, get over this uh, problem and this? I mean, because it's a long-standing phobia of drugs, and and uh, you know they're they're kind of doing a reefer madness type thing with kratom now, and uh, you know it's it's it really seems to be so ingrained that it's kind of a hard thing to to get over that people need to understand that this addiction problems are very rare like you said this type 2 addiction is genetic um and actually i had a question about that is it is it always purely genetic or can like childhood trauma lead to that sort of addiction well no okay all those other things are are in type one okay now you see that the odd thing about um heroin disease it's a cross-section because see it's random it's there is a warning for it that doctors don't bother to pay attention to um, when they take a family history, you know, in the office. Do you have cancer in the family? Do you have anybody with a heart attack? Yeah. Those aren't particularly run in families. But the question should be, do you have uh, serious alcoholism or addiction in your family? Mm-hmm. 75% of 35 
heroin to these folks, we um, did a little survey on 75% said they had first degree relatives with the disease. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. You know, so no, uh, there is, you see, you just, you take your first pill, like this Dr. Prinzboon in Boston, that's it. You're nailed. Yeah. Now there is a little window in there. Um, in other words, let's say, oh, and by the way, you have, have had a history of no opiates when this happens. Mm -hmm. This is the first opiate in your whole life. So if, if we had public education and everybody knew about this and, oh my God, you know, you, you've uh, gone to the doctor, come here, George, you know, you're a teenager. I want you to take this pill here in the living room. In 30 minutes, you say, how are you feeling? If the kid says, I'm going to the moon, bam, that's the disease. And there's a window mm. before the person really starts seeking more. In other words, you've had this one experience that's so wonderful, you can't even describe it. And then you start thinking, wait a minute, if I can get some more of these, I can have more of these experiences. If you get them right then, you can stop all the deaths yeah. because they won't be on the streets getting heroin. They'll be treated by addiction specialists. And this is where addiction specialists, you know, come into play mm -hmm. because if you break your leg and you have the addiction disease, uh, what are you going to do? Not treat them? No. What you do is you give the bottle to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't give the bottle to the person with the disease. Uh, you know, so yeah, it just happens at random. I had an article from 1925. Uh, 19, yeah, 25 after the Harrison Act, mm -hmm. they were studying addicts and they said, you know, it's odd. Some of them go to a doctor and they, they end up addicted just like the people in the streets. Well, first pill. So kids need to be, we're going to try to do some education to, to, for the high schools um, mm -hmm. because, you know, forget the rest of the population. They're so opiophobic. Uh, a little story of a kid. He was uh, eight years old and he's, he's driving his little bicycle down the street. And this guy's got this uh, um, Confederate flag hanging out. And the kid wheels into the driveway and he goes up on the porch. He says, that's racism. In other words, you get the kids early. So we're going to teach the teenagers about this. And if people in the government don't want to learn about it, it's fine. But you see, you can prevent it yourself. If Peter Grinspoon, a doctor, had known about the genetics and about the triggering, when he took a, a and, and then when he takes a pill, he's going to tell himself, this is the first time I've ever taken this. Then he's going to go to the moon. He's going to go, oh, crap, I've got the disease. Now I need to, I need to come in with a little, little self-control uh, uh, here. You know, so this is when the self-control comes in. you got to stop realizing you have a disease. But if you realize you have a disease, it's a lot easier. Nice article about Jamie Lee Curtis. She was in her 30s, went and got some surgery. Somebody <laughs> gave her some flaking and she went to the moon and she ended up stealing and for years and years. Um, and had she known, whoa, I just went to the moon. That means I got this disease. Stop. Help <laughs> me stop. You know, don't let me go for more. See, once you start taking it, then you got a whole different thing. Yeah. Because now you have additional behavioral um, addition, just like you did with cocaine. So now not only do you have this physical medical disease, 
on top of it, you've got the reinforcement of feeling wonderful, you know, yeah. just like the reinforcement of feeling wonderful, you know, taking amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a double whammy. It's once it gets started. So that, and it's like sex education, you know, they didn't want to teach sex education because uh, those have more sex. Henry Anslinger, this horrible person that ran the federal uh, narcotics bureau for 32 yeah. years, mm-hmm. um, started in the thirties, bad man. Yeah. Um, he, I have an article in the New York times back in the fifties where he came to speak before the city council and he, he advised against education on drugs because he said more people will just use them. So back to your important question, what are we going to do when you've yeah. got a problem like this? It's like the problem of people disliking folks with dark skin. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or how are you going to change that? Uh, well, how did they change it? They changed it by protesting and then by law. So there has to be protection for people with this problem. Now, half, at least half of the folks we know about with long-term painful disease are officially disabled. And that puts them under the protection of the American with Disabilities Act. Yeah. So they already have a law. So, so we need to look at laws. The DEA, which was created by the paranoid Richard Nixon in 1974, yeah. um, is the only um, agency in the government that has both regulatory and enforcement functions. Yeah. You can't have both. So in other words, when, when you hear of pharmacies being closed down and uh, doctors losing their licenses to treat people with painful disease, like I did, um, that's regulatory. And then they, they can take the regulatory stuff and just flip it over and the same agent can come and charge you criminally. You broke the federal law, we're going to take you to federal court. Hmm. So that has to stop the police department and it's not their fault this is the way it was set up you know by richard nixon who who set up these laws to catch his enemies um because it, it you know they stiffen the law for for marijuana and for cocaine and you could you could go to a meeting let's say the black panthers and um uh, you know look around and find if you find one bag of cocaine you can arrest the whole group on conspiracy yeah so that's what it was, and the law needs to be changed. Um, you can't blame the DEA uh, because they're doing their job. Yeah, they're, they're their just job the cops. As in the law, you know. Yep. So, but they need to have that. The law gave them both functions, and that the regulatory or inspection function needs to go to somebody like HHS, uh-huh. where they would come around and inspect pharmacies. Not not a police officer with a gun. Yeah. You know, these are specially trained, they're special agents, and but that's their job. They have to, and they don't know what they're doing because they're not trained. They just get a few guidelines, and then they what they do is they take them back to the Department of Justice and they go over them and they say, Well, let's do some more investigation, and blah blah blah. Um, all under the federal statutes. <laughs> so we have to change some laws, that's the way we got to do it. Talking like me on this show is not going to do it, and writing nice articles isn't going to do it because nobody reads it. The people who need to listen to this show today are not going to listen. Yeah. Know? So, so we're just doing this for ourselves, uh, you know, which is nice. 
And it's nice to generally get the word out there because you know what it is? It's like fly fishing. You know, you put the little fly out there on the water. You hope there's a big fish underneath. Um, in other words, we hope that somebody's listening to this that knows a senator. Yeah. Or, or, or knows a law group, you know, that's willing to do some pro bono work. We got people, we got doctors in jail um, who sold no drugs. I mean, the law says you can't sell drugs. Uh, and that's yeah. reasonable uh, because you don't have a license. Hmm. Uh, but doctors aren't selling them. What the doctors are being sent to prison for is failing to detect criminals who are coming into their practice trying to purloin prescriptions and taking them off and selling them. Yeah. By the way, my prescription for this guy was actually 800 pills. Um, if if somebody could steal that, it would be worth $24,000. Yeah. One bottle. So that's what happened um, that led to uh, you losing your license? Yeah. Well, yeah. I lost my DEA license. I couldn't prescribe. Um, oh, okay. So you can still practice medicine. Well, I've just, well, I'm 77, so I decided to retire. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and you see, all of my patients were taking these medicines, so I didn't have yeah. practice anymore. You know, I mean, I had a specialty practice of just people with long-term painful disease, and, and um, I haven't really found anybody else that has one of these. Um, but I, I rescued people. We call them pain refugees. Yeah. Mm. And, um, you know, fortunately, a physician agreed to take my patients, the same patients that got me into trouble. Um, and the charges were, you know, not following CDC guidelines, voluntary, unauthorized, but the state adopted them without reading them. Mm-hmm. And so they become the rule for the state. You know, see, that that becomes a problem yeah. because they're voluntary. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so so the question is, if the state adopts a voluntary federal guideline, is it still voluntary? Yeah, we have a we need we need a legal opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, but strange. anyway, it was yeah. time for me to retire, and uh, mm-hmm. it was horrible to because the DEA will not allow refills. Uh, all of my patients only had thirty days to find more medicine. Oh man! And there would definitely definitely been more suicides. Because I had the more severe cases. And when a person has a painful disease, they put up with it. Then when they get treated and they realize now they can function as a normal person. And if it gets taken away again, it's much worse. Because initially you're you're just doing the best you can. Now you know that you can be better. And so when you lose that, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is... This the reason this is worse than Guantanamo, which was also purposeful torture without consent. Yeah, is that in Guantanamo they take you down and dunk you under the water, beat whatever they do for three or four hours, then you go back to your cell and you're fine. People with pain disease who've been pulled off their medicines aren't fine. They've got this twenty four hours a day. You know, one lady yeah. said that, you know, she couldn't get off the couch. And so she couldn't make the lunch for her fifth grader. Mm-hmm. And so she just told her fifth grader how to make lunch. You imagine that a mother yeah. whose responsibility is to make sure her child is dead. Yeah. Not being able to do it. 
because some doctor took her off her medicine without her permission. Yeah, and we get a lot of stories like that, uh, like comments on our website, and and you know they're just desperately turning to this kratom, and sometimes you don't know what's in it. There's no standards. Uh, there's a there was a uh, I had another scientist on that found toxic metals in some samples, so we're kind of pushing for regulation. So if people that have no other choice want to take something that they should be being prescribed uh then it can at least be a clean clean plant sure. material so yeah so yeah we get a lot, there's definitely a crossover community um because i've heard a lot i've had somebody with interstitial cystitis uh complex regional yeah. pain syndrome uh lady okay. that almost killed herself if she didn't uh and then this kratom actually saved her and i'm not saying it's better or worse or whatever right. then yeah and then and, and you've outlined the problem uh for many people who who uh consume kratom you know we're we're back to the caveman days where people are having to go out and scrounge yes. up herbs really that's literally i mean because these it's literally just leaves on trees uh if yeah. you know there have been cases of adulteration just like uh out I don't, I don't think it's very common um kind of like with cannabis it's not that common but there are cases mm -hmm. um just like when people have to go out in the street and get heroin and they don't know how much mm -hmm. uh, if it's there's fentanyl in it or not because you know they either have that addiction or they're in in that in horrible pain Wish I could end it on a positive note, but <laughs> I don't know if there is one. Well, um, there's what I have. I have a little file in my drawer. It's called Redemption. Mm -hmm. And every time I hear a story, like up in New Hampshire, a doctor was sanctioned for under treatment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's starting to happen, but we're going to need laws. We're going to need new laws. There is a hearing going on. Um, Alexander, what's his name? Uh, Lamar Alexander is holding a hearing in the Senate for people who've been cut off mm -hmm. and starting to hear these stories. Um, the, the other way to get things changed is mass effect. So in other words, when the government starts talking about regulating uh, Kratom or taking it off the streets, you need a huge response to all the senators and all the representatives. Mm -hmm. And that can work. You know, that can stop things um, temporarily, but it's really going to take laws. Um, yeah. And um, we're also looking into nurse practitioners, since the doctors aren't participating, um, nurse practitioners and making it safer for them. The government's not rating nurse practitioners as much. Um, there's only 26 states that allow nurse practitioners to practice on their own, but that's one of the things that we're doing at the National Pain Council. And if anybody okay. wants to join the National Pain Council, I'll put a link and help out, uh, the, just nationalpaincouncil.org. Okay. Yeah. And you'll get there and you sign up. It's confidential. We don't release names of members. We ask members if you have a particular skill, um, you can help us volunteer. The other day, a woman joined who's a pharmacist. And so that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, basically, our goal, like I said, is to get people back on their medicines that were taken from them illegally without their permission yeah. and that they still need. Yeah. You know, yeah. This, is a, this is what we call a critical treatment, abandonment. 
yeah. abandoning patients is if you stop their critical treatment, even if you don't pick them out of the practice, you've abandoned the patient. Thank you, Dr. Thomas Klein. Check out thomaskleinmd.com, nationalpaincouncil.org. I'll have links to Dr. Klein's YouTube and Twitter. Music is Memories of Thailand by Risey. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.